0: We got a good one for you today. We talked to Maryland delegate, Brooke Learman. Not only is she a member of the assembly, she's a civil rights attorney. She's also just announced her candidacy for Maryland comptroller. We talk about what that office does and how it can impact the people who are in most need in her state. We talk about her work in the legislature and her path into public service. We talk about her effort to bring world central kitchen to Baltimore when they needed it the most. Brooke is an inspiring and energetic leader. I'm so excited she's taking the next step, and I'm excited for you to hear about her work for the state of Maryland. Delegate Brooke Learman, welcome to an honorable profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here.
0: There's so many things I want to talk to you about. Uh, We are navigating multiple crises. You just finished a session in the Maryland House But most excitingly, you've announced your candidacy for comptroller for the state of Maryland. Can you talk to us a little bit about what a comptroller is and why you want the job and why we should all be paying attention?
1: (laughs) Sure, absolutely. And thanks again for having me. We just uh, finished a big General Assembly session here in Maryland, really proud of a lot of the work that we did. But you're right, I went right from that into running for statewide office. The comptroller is one of only three statewide elected officials in Maryland. We have the governor, who of course oversees our agencies, our attorney general, who represents us in court very ably. We have a great AG. And we have the comptroller then, who sees every dollar into the state and every dollar out of the state. So it's sort of like the elected chief financial officer for the state of Maryland. And I'm really excited about it because this is the office that is really uniquely focused are really uniquely situated to focus on income-based issues. You know, making sure that we have an economy that works for all Marylanders and I think especially coming out of the pandemic as we look towards 2022 really reimagining what this kind of office that's focused on procurement and taxes and a a seat on the pension board, what this kind of office can do to really uplift Maryland families, communities, and small businesses. So I think there's just amazing potential with this really unique office. And I'm really excited to sort of travel around the state and talk to people about why they should care about who our comptroller is and and why I will be a, a great advocate for them.
0: Yeah. And you've made your career on social justice and civil rights issues. You're a civil rights attorney. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the tangible ways that that office can impact people's day-to-day lives or social justice issues that we all care about?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the Comptroller's Office is the office that really touches every family, right? There's no other state agency that plays such a unique role and such a personal role working with families, whether that is as the tax collector or whether it's, you know, working with a small business to help them secure a contract with the state or, you know, whether it's on the pension board working to make sure that people have access to a strong retirement. Um, But I do think also that, you know, we in this country and certainly in Maryland, we are not immune from the you know, persistent racial wealth gap that exists in the country. And and that really holds back our communities from being as prosperous and thriving as they could be. It has a, you know, the racial wealth gap has a persistent negative effect, not just on black communities and Latino communities, but really on our economy as a whole. And so I think we have to confront it head on. And I think as comptroller, I'll be in a unique and important position to convene stakeholders, thought partners and government officials to implement strategies that really challenge that gap and begin to undo really decades of systemic racism in our housing and our business sectors in procurement, in taxing and tax policy so that every community in Maryland has the chance to reach its full potential and so that our economy can, can really grow and thrive and benefit everybody. You know, there's sort of innumerable number of ways that I feel like the comptroller's office can, can make a dent and can have a positive impact on setting us for, toward a more equitable path and, and more a path that 's more economically just so i 'm very excited about it
0: and I think there 's a lesson out there for the listeners who uh, who are t- tend to focus on you know progressive issues and civil rights issues. Uh, if you go where the money is and you bring your values, you can also have a tremendous impact and I think too often those in the progressive community tend to focus on sort of legislative fixes and less on some of these mechanisms where where billions of dollars are flowing in and out of communities or states. Uh, and if you have someone with good values there, like you, uh, you can have a tremendous impact.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I think sometimes people, you know, I think we, especially in a post-pandemic world and state, I think we have to reimagine the role of some of these government agencies and how they can use their roles to benefit people in ways that maybe we hadn't thought of before. Just one quick example is that, you know, the tax, any tax collector in the state or in the country, in any state, has access to an incredible amount of data, right? Financial data. The Comptroller's Office in Maryland is the hub of all financial data in the state. And, you know, we see, therefore, sort of an understand at a you know, pretty deep level, who has access to banking services and who doesn't, right? So when you, when a family files a, your tax return and, you know, maybe they're on the EIT, maybe they qualify for the EITC, maybe they don't, if they're not asking for a direct deposit to a bank, right, chances are that they are unbanked. And it's really hard to build financial resilience if you don't have a banking relationship, right? And whether it's with a credit union or a bank, a traditional bank, you know, it's just important to have some place to, to be saving. And so, but the comptroller gets all that data, right? And so the comptroller's office can do outreach and be proactive and reach out to those families and say, you know, hey, we have this new program we've created working with, you know, maybe a credit union or a local bank that we'd be happy to, you know, talk to you about so that you can have a banking relationship. And then the comptroller can work with the general assembly you know, to even pass legislation to say, okay, anybody who has been unbanked, who opens a bank account through this program, you know, if they're eligible, can get some sort of, you know, small deposit to start things off. So I just think that there's a lot of ways that, you know, will end up benefiting people that we can think through how to use different government agencies.
0: I think that's a really great insight. Yeah, I amend my advice to not only just uh, where the money is, but also where the data is, right? There's tremendous power once you can start looking at that data and seeing who's benefiting and who's not.
1: Yep, absolutely.
0: So tell me a little bit about what it's like to move from campaigning for your district in the General Assembly to statewide. Maryland's a small state, but it's a diverse state. And so tell me what that looks like as you try to get out in a COVID world uh, and talk to people
1: you know it feels like the largest small state when i'm driving across it in my little electric vehicle <laughs> um uh you know from ocean city and the eastern shore you know across the bay bridge to you know, Central Maryland and Baltimore. And then, of course, we have this beautiful Southern Maryland and then the D.C. suburbs and then out to Western Maryland and the mountains. It's a really, we like to call it America in miniature. (laughs) Um, And I think that's true geographically, but it's also, and it's also true demographically. We have an amazingly diverse state. It's really incredible, large African-American population, but also a really amazing immigrant population all over the state. And it's really exciting to be able to talk to people about the ways that the comptroller's office can benefit their communities and how we can make sure that there is a bridge to different communities in the comptroller's office. So helping, you know, if you're a new immigrant, making sure you understand the tax system. If you are a Black-owned business and you are having, you know, you are facing an uphill battle to get loans because we know banks traditionally do not lend as much to Black-owned businesses as White-owned businesses, working with Black-owned businesses to make sure that the Comptroller is their advocate and ally to get loans and set up loan programs. So I just think, you know, in every different community, there are so many ways that the Comptroller's office, because of its many unique positions in the state of Maryland, can work with different communities. And, you know, there are so many ways that I haven't even thought of yet, right? So I mean, the best part is like going and talking to people and hearing what their challenges are, and then sort of brainstorming, like, wow, you know, we could Imagine a scenario where the comptroller's office could help with X or Y or Z in a in a different way. You know, some, I was talking to a woman who owns a small business recently, and she told me that. It takes her fifteen minutes to fill out her federal taxes that she has to file every month for her business, um, but it takes her you know three hours to fill out her Maryland state taxes. and I just thought, you know this is crazy, right? We can do better than that. So I think there's a lot that we can do to modernize the office and build off of the work that our current comptroller has done. You know he's done a great job of really being an advocate for small business, but I think there's you know, and there's always more to do, right? And so I'm excited about that.
0: I like it. Can you, for as long as I've yeah. known you, you've been so passionate about public service. Where does this all come from? What gives you this fire to to run around the state talking about how to improve tax forms and benefits for, for immigrant communities?
1: That's a great question. You know, I think that certainly my parents raised me to believe in the power of public service to really make a difference in people's lives. I've had some great role models. I worked for u s Senator Paul Wellstone on his two thousand and two reelection campaign when he and his wife and our camp some of our campaign team was killed in a plane crash. and you know he always used to say, "We all do better when we all do better. And I think that really resonates and has always resonated with me that you know I can never fulfill my potential until you fulfill yours. I don't know. I also believe that, you know, to whom much is given, much is expected. And I have been, you know, my family and I are incredibly blessed and have a lot of, you know, have great resources and I've had, you know, good health and opportunities. And so for me, and I feel this even more acutely, I will say since becoming a parent and a mom, you know, I just, I want other other people's kids to have the opportunities that my kids have. It just feels like the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do. And, you know, it's important for those kids to fulfill their sort of God-given potential. And it also means that the world will be better for my kids. And so to me, it's, it, a lot of it, a lot of the times it feels very personal to me. (laughs) Um, And when I meet somebody and I want people to, I want people to believe in government and to believe that there are people, you know, the government is only as good as the people we elect. And so I want people to believe that they, there are people in government who are, who are looking out for them and advocating for them so that, uh, you know, so that we can build up better communities and keep that long arc bending uh, a little bit more acutely toward justice. (laughs) So, yeah, it's a, I don't know. It's a, it's a good question, but I do feel very motivated. (laughs)
0: Good Can you talk a little bit, I mean, speaking of justice, so so you worked for a civil law firm. Can you talk about the difference that you can make sort of in private practice on fighting for some of that for a better world versus in elective office, and what are the pros and cons of each?
1: Yeah, I work at a great law firm, Brown Goldstein and Levy, that I love, and you know we've done fair housing cases and I've represented a number of low-wage workers all over the country who aren't being paid overtime or in some cases are not being paid minimum wage you know I've represented a man who was wrongfully convicted and served 21 years for a crime he didn't commit I'll say I love that work and I think that there's sort of a common thread or there's a very common thread between the work that I do as a lawyer and my rep- my you know representing or I say representing clients, and representing people who are not clients, I don't get to bill hourly. <laughs> you know, it's it's a lot of how I think about being a lawyer to the clients that I serve. It's not about giving them a voice. Some people say, oh, you're giving them a voice. I, don't, I really don't like that. I'm not giving people a voice. My job as an attorney is to make my clients' voices heard, right? And I feel similarly as a state delegate and as an elected official, like, you know, my communities have a voice. (laughs) It's just that not, people are not always willing to listen to them or hear them. And so, uh, you know, I think that there is a very, to me, it's very similar. I also think, you know, as an attorney, we can only enforce laws that are there, right? And so sometimes what I see is there will be a really horrible situation but it's not illegal. <laughs> There's nothing you can do about it. There's no remedy. You know, one good example of this is in housing. In Maryland, until last year, any landlord could discriminate against people based on their source of income. So, if you were a veteran who had a voucher, a landlord could say to you, "No, yeah, nope, I don't take vouchers. No thanks." Or if you were a mom with kids who had a Section Eight voucher, a landlord could say, "Nope, we don't take vouchers. Never mind." And what that meant was that these government dollars uh, were worthless and you couldn't find a place to live even once you hit the lottery and scored a voucher, which are, you know, after being for five years on a waiting list. Right. And so there was no legal recourse the landlord doing that. So we had to pass a law and we passed a law last year called the Home Act that I was the House sponsor for to say, nope, actually that is illegal. (laughs) That is in fact housing discrimination and we are not going to allow it anymore in Maryland. Um, You know, I think, uh, so there are sometimes instances like that that are really important to make sure we're getting the laws right. But then there's, you know, a different kind of policy too, which is setting up government to help prevent the need for things like that. So this year I passed a big bill to create the, our state's first Office of Statewide Broadband. We're one of the few states that did not have an office dedicated to ensuring that every Marylander has access to state affordable high-speed internet. And, you know, that's I think we all agree, especially after the pandemic, that having access and knowing how to use affordable high speed Internet is pretty foundational to any success in life. Right. To whether you're starting a small business or doing a telehealth appointment or if you have a kid in school. (laughs) So and yet, you know, 23 percent of Maryland families are not on hard line or not on broadband. So there's just a lot to of work to do in that area. And though there wouldn't be sort of a legal case about it, it's still, you know, a really foundational and important issue. So that would affect probably some of the clients that I'd represent. So there are a couple, There are some things that are the same and some things that are different.
0: Absolutely. That home act, I mean, it sounds, it sounds like a, you know, a technical change, but it could have profound impacts. Have you seen, have you start, it's only a year old, but have you started to see those, those impacts in your housing market?
1: Well, it's interesting. So we know that there were two, there are a couple counties, a little more than two, a few, a few counties who had on their own already passed sort of mini Home Act in their own county. And what we saw, and part of the reason we were able able to make this state law was that in counties where there was, you know, this non-discrimination standard had been adopted, voucher holders were able to use their voucher 95% of the times. And in counties where there was no Home Act, it was sometimes as low as 50 percent. So there is definitely good data out there to demonstrate that people now are much more able to use those vouchers, which is great. Can
0: I ask, uh, you did a lot of good work with the New Deal around thinking about how we sort of renew the American promise and how we create more opportunity and equity in our systems. We now have Joe Biden as president, Kamala Harris as vice president, And we have the Rescue Act, which is pouring uh, billions of dollars into our states. What's that looking like for Maryland in terms of reaching some of the goals that you had sort of advocated for through New Deal and and through the, the General Assembly?
1: Yeah, great question. I mean, thank God for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and thank God for everybody who's listening who knocked doors for them and you know contributed. And thank you. I helped lead the Women for Biden Harris effort in Maryland, which was awesome and really fun. But we are in a totally and fundamentally different position right now because of the American Rescue Plan that than we would have been without it. I mean, ARPA has. going to save every budget in the state of Maryland. You know, when I talk to my friends on different county councils around the state, every single one of them has said to me, we somehow have a surplus, right? Like people have, counties have money to help, right? And not that they're going to be profligate and, you know, go out and spend, 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 because this is a one-time thing, but that they don't have to cut like they did last year and that we can move, you know, sort of Reengage on some of the things that had to be lost during the pandemic because we were focusing on other priorities is just so fundamentally important, right? Like during the pandemic, we saw in Maryland what a decade of disinvestment from state government would do. We had a Department of Labor who was not staffed up and not ready to take on the unemployment disaster that occurred. We saw other departments that were similarly understaffed and could not meet the needs of residents. And I think it has really demonstrated that, you know, when we underinvest in state governments, we do a disservice to residents, right? I mean, you've got to invest. And so I'm really hopeful that we you know, through transit services, through investment in telehealth. And actually, we are going to use $300 million from ARPA to help with broadband and expand broadband benefits and help build out broadband and leverage private dollars, too, to build out broadband. We are going to see really transformative and amazing results. And I am, you know, fingers crossed, too, that we can pass that the Biden administration, the Senate and the House can pass an infrastructure bill, which would you know, I think be one of the most important bills, you know, passed in twenty years in terms of putting people to work, building back our, you know, creating new infrastructure for the twenty first century, creating real transit that connect people to jobs, you know, looking at broadband and expanding that, home health health care, child care. I mean these are fundamental to an economy that actually includes everybody and so that works for everyone. So I'm, you know, I'm very excited about the stuff, you know, the the, the policy proposals that are coming out of the Biden administration and I should say also HR one, which I really hope they pass. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. So so there's a lot to be done.
0: Can I ask what were the negotiations like in Maryland? Because although you're a very blue state, you have a Republican governor and how how what were the how was the money divvied up, and what was the approach taken?
1: Sure, well, so we have a great Speaker of the House, adrian jones and a and a wonderful Senate president, Bill Ferguson, who's my senator and uh they worked very closely with the Governor to you know come up with ideas that were shared priorities. Many members of the House and Senate had brought pieces of legislation that You know, looked at different whether it's supporting small businesses uh, and our restaurants through this. Whether it was, you know, making sure that we passed an earned income tax credit. We passed an earning income tax credit expansion in our state support bill that is now the most generous state EITC in the country. Then we also expanded it so that anybody who has an ITIN, um, so including undocumented immigrants who file. Tax returns, they are also eligible for the state earned income tax credit. We're one of only three states now that does that. You know, we worked closely with the governor on those bills, and we also worked closely with him, uh, the leadership did, on how to divvy up the money. And, you know, there are some things that were really shared priorities, like broadband, right? Our bill to create the statewide broadband passed unanimously out of the Senate and with overwhelming bipartisan support in the House. So, funding it and putting money behind it. It was not a question of like, will we put money behind it? I think when that money came in, it was a question of how much and, you know, to what, to what programming. So I think it's a back and forth. I think the more interesting, you know, another question will be what is, how do we do redistricting with divided government? But that's TBD. I don't know that one yet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, good. I mean, it sounds like, you know, there was a bipartisan effort to to make sure that you invested those funds in the ways that would benefit your citizenry. And that's, you know, that's a good place to start. And then there's, there's always arguments to be had after that. Can I ask you, uh, one of the things you did during COVID, in addition to having a family, and going through all of us, the same things that all of us have gone through the same challenges, and being in the legislature, you brought World Central Kitchen to Baltimore, can you talk a little bit about how you did that? And then what happened when you did?
1: Sure. That was, I would say, one of the more exciting things that happened during the pandemic. I saw an article early on, you know, as soon as I got home from our truncated session last year, really dug in on food issues and working with my community groups, pulling people together to talk about what we needed to do to keep people afloat. And I, I, Sort of immediately saw that one of the things that we needed to do was to, you know, to make sure that people were eating. <laughs> and uh, so I saw an article that World Central Kitchen and Jose Andre were using National Stadium uh, to make and prepare foods and hand out food. Jose Andre is a Maryland resident, <laughs> and so I I sort of I sent in a blind email to the World Central Kitchen website and email address. And I think I put in the subject like from a Maryland state delegate or something like that, hoping that it would make them read it. And to my sort of delight, uh, I got an email back pretty quickly from Nate Mook, the CEO, who's a really phenomenal person. I don't know how he keeps up with everything that he keeps up with and said, Hey, we're, you know, I'd love to talk to you about Maryland and about Baltimore. Tell me what's going on. So we set up a call with him, the CEO. And I walked them through Everything that I saw happening in Baltimore, like I was, you know, very connected to the mayor's office, working with their great team. They were doing phenomenal work, really trying to get people fed. And I was connected to the school system. We were having weekly calls with the school system on feeding kids at our school sites. And so I was able to give them a lot of information about what was going on and then invited them to talk with our school team and then and the mayor's team about the different ways that it might make sense for them to engage. So they came up and they did a visit at one of our schools to see the cafeterias, to see how things worked. And then, you know, they just said, okay, we're in. I mean, I think, you know, they saw that we were doing what we could, right? We were doing, we were all in and they were going to be able to be really supplemental to that and help even more. And so they adopted, I think ultimately it was 11 school sites and every Friday, every either Tuesday or Thursday, there were one school site on Tuesdays and a different school sites on Thursdays. They came with 25,000 meals and we handed out, you know, thousands and thousands of meals to parents and families. And you didn't have to be a school kid. You could be anybody in the neighborhood. And then they started serving food at Camden Yards. So we handed out 25,000 meals every Saturday at Camden Yards for several months as well. Um, and it was, it was a really amazing experience. I think it was incredibly, it was like a shot in the arm for Baltimore, frankly, to see this important international, amazing uh, nonprofit come in and help us and, you know, provide support and have Jose Andre come in was very cool. (laughs) He's just such an amazing person. He's so, you know, wonderful and warm, but also it was, you know, I think it was also really sobering for me to see the lines of people. I think it was sobering for everybody to see you know how much need there was and to be able to provide that additional support was really gratifying. And, you know, it was, a, but it, was a, it was a really scary time, you know, not knowing what was going on or what was going to happen. But yeah, I was, I'm really glad it worked out. Another thing they did that didn't get as much news, but that I think is actually very cool and should really change the model, I think, in how we do food relief is they paid restaurants to prepare food to then give that food out to community groups to distribute. So Kwame Rose, a uh, an, an activist here in Baltimore, and I both recommended different restaurants, and the mayor's office did too, to them to give to pay the restaurants to make meals, and then those restaurants were connected to CDC's or uh, Casa de Maryland or other groups that were giving out food, and then they could give out that food. So it was supporting the whole supply chain all the way through, which I think was really important and creative too. So yeah, it was a, it's, they're a pretty amazing organization, really transformative.
0: They are. Yeah, they are absolutely amazing. They, they, uh, we had, we had, uh, in the midst of COVID, we had major fires out here in my district and they showed up and quickly just mobilized and served the community. And you're right. It's about so much more than just the food. It's about, you know, the hope and attention and, and then when you can create the win-win of, uh, working with local restaurants, it just makes such a big impact on the community.
1: Yeah, I agree, I agree. It's um, their logistics, they do great at logistics. <laughs> They're really good, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's very cool, awesome. That's neat. they were out there too, that's great. I
0: wanna talk, you formed a task force on Maryland maternal child health with our fellow new dealer, Bill Ferguson, who's I guess also your senator. Can you talk about the work that you've done in that regard? It's it's one of those areas that I don't think gets enough attention when we're uh, when we're making policy and, and can have a tremendous, tremendous impact.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Senator Ferguson and I worked with the director of pediatrics at Hopkins to form this task force because we recognize, so in Maryland, we have a really unique pay model for healthcare. We have an all payer model. We have a Medicaid from, or we have a Medicaid and Medicare waivers. So we pay differently than I think any other state in the country. So if you walk into, you know, Johns Hopkins for a knee replacement, you, it costs the same amount that hospital gets paid the same amount as if you walk into Mercy Hospital or Holy Cross Hospital. Um, And so we have just, frankly, I think it's a better model than any other state. I think it's how things should be, but we have waivers. But we also incentivize hospitals through different payment systems. And all of those payment systems and and the incentives were based on adult healthcare. And so there was nothing to sort of incentivize hospitals to think big about how to reduce morbidities and mortality rates in women and children, other than sort of just doing the right thing. And so we wanted to think about how we could financially incentivize hospitals to make sure that they were focused on reducing maternal deaths and improving maternal and young child you know, infant uh, health. And so this task force met and came up with several recommendations, made those recommendations to the Maryland Health Services Cost Review Commission, which is the commission in Maryland that sets pricing data for all procedures and needs in Maryland hospitals, and the HSCRC adopted the recommendations. And so now... Maternal health and infant health is a priority for Maryland hospitals, not just because they should, you know, they care about health care, but because it's a financial, they are financially incentivized to do so. We have seen, of course, Black maternal health needs really need to be more paramount. You know, the number of Black women who die or have higher risk pregnancies is really outrageous. I mean, it's unconscionable, frankly. And so I'm really hopeful that through this kind of program, we'll be able to really move forward quickly on ensuring better health care outcomes for all moms.
0: There you go again, aligning data and money with uh, values and getting getting amazing outcomes that can be a model, not just in your state, but in all other states, as, as everyone struggles to try to address the really dis- disparate outcomes that we're seeing among minority communities in this area.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: We're getting hopefully close to the uh, end of this pandemic and this extraordinary challenge that's on our it's been taxing all of our systems and our families and our small businesses. What do you think looks different coming out of the pandemic than, than when we went in? And, and how do you think your state will, will adjust to those new realities?
1: You know, I hope that a lot looks different, frankly. You know, I think that, you know, one of the lines that I relate to and appreciate about the pandemic is that we are all in the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. And I think this pandemic and the racial reckoning that we are going through is really a clarion call to government leaders and to people who want to be in government that normal isn't good enough. And so we have an opportunity to really reimagine how government can work in people's lives in our small businesses and supporting entrepreneurship and supporting women getting back into the workforce in an equitable way and and supporting our black communities, our Latino communities, our immigrant communities. And so, you know, I think that we've learned a lot through this pandemic. Look, I can't imagine before the pandemic, a place where we would just send people money, right? We didn't do that as a government, but we did that. Like multiple times throughout the past year, we have sent people money, and thought it was a good idea. And so, you know, we have transformed from only giving loans to small businesses to recognizing that sometimes small businesses need grants. You know, we have figured out ways to just eliminate red tape entirely to get things done in a quick and efficient way because we need it to. And so I think it's really important that we take those lessons and recognize that just because we've always done something one way doesn't mean that that's the good the best way to do it and that government can have a more effective and you know create more equitable communities and more financially resilient communities and families at every level so i'm really excited about really being bold and reimagining how the Maryland comptroller's office can create more financially resilient families, communities, entrepreneurs around the state. And I'm really excited to work with people to do that work and to listen to their ideas as well. So there's a lot to be done.
0: (laughs) Well, let me just say, I'm so excited to have you now running for statewide office. I think you're going to be an amazing, bold comptroller those two words usually don't go together, but I think in your case, um, they, they will, and it'll have a powerful impact on not only your residents, but again, for all the other states that, are, that, that will look to Maryland and look to what you're doing for, for models for what they can do in their own state. I've always enjoyed seeing you at New Deal conferences and your energy and intelligence, and I'm, I'm excited that you're taking this next step. And thank you for joining us on an honorable profession.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I've made it to the big time. I'm finally <laughs> on an honorable profession. Yes. Uh, so no, I really appreciate all the work you do. And I miss seeing you and other folks at New Deal conferences and exchanging ideas about what works in our states and in our localities. So hopefully I will. we will all get to be able to be together again soon. But thank you so much for having me. And thanks for all you do. And be well. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Brooke. Take care. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcast. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.